The Department of Veterans Affairs has tried twice before to replace its aging financial management IT system. Both attempts failed. But the third try could be the charm. The current project, called ITAMS, is mostly on track. Lawmakers say they're determined to make sure it stays that way, and that's partly because nearly $4 billion are at stake, and partly because VA can't afford to keep using its 30-year-old legacy system anymore. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has the details. IFAMS crossed a significant milestone this month. After five previous small deployments over the past three years, the new system went live in its largest wave yet, increasing its total user base by 60% all at once. Terry Riffle, VA's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Financial Management Business Transformation, says the system now has 4,700 users. IFAMS users have collectively processed over 3.5 million transactions, representing almost $10 billion in Treasury disbursements. IFAMS is stable, achieving over 99.9% uptime. It was also the first time VA went live simultaneously with both the finance and acquisition components of IFAMS, which demonstrates IFAMS is a viable solution capable of becoming the next generation financial and acquisition solution for VA. It's important to understand that IFAMS is not just a new core accounting and acquisition system. It is crucial to transforming VA's business processes and capabilities both so we can meet our goals and objectives in compliance with financial management legislation and continue to successfully execute our mission to provide veterans with the health care and benefits they have earned and deserve. And moving VA off of that legacy system is a matter of some urgency. The department itself says the old system presents enormous risk because it's becoming increasingly expensive to maintain and because it wasn't built to current audit standards. That means VA has a very difficult time implementing financial improvement recommendations when its auditors make them. And even though VA is currently able to earn clean audit opinions, doing so requires a lot of manual workarounds. Nick Dahl, VA's Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations, says the material weaknesses auditors are reporting tie directly back to the inadequacies of the current system. Continuing with uh, material weaknesses would be likely. They'd still be doing the manual workarounds for certain things. I I would say bigger picture, you, you have to look at it that VA recognized the need to replace FMS more than two decades ago. They weren't successful with core FLS or flight. They're now working with IFAMS. I would say that, you know, if this system is not successful, how, how much longer will it take to get a modern system, how much effort, how much financial resource? So I'm very hopeful that IFAMS is going to be successful um, because obviously we're dealing with a system that, that's 40 years old and it's not meeting the needs. So it really is, I think, vital that VA does all they can to get this system online. And even though VA is confident in IFAMS as of now, it still has a long way to go. 4,700 users may sound like a lot, but the total VA workforce who will need to use the system is about 125,000 people. And so far, IFAMS has only been tested in the National Cemetery Administration, part of the Veterans Benefits Administration, and some smaller VA components. So far, the department hasn't tried to implement it in its largest and arguably most complex component, the Veterans Health Administration. Again, Terry Riffle. What I will acknowledge is that obviously VHA is the largest organization that we have yet to implement. I would also tell you that that's by design. We want to make sure that we're addressing any improvements that we need to make with our deployment strategy before we tackle VHA and also the complex programs that VBA has remaining. Uh, Those obviously would impact veterans in some way if we don't do them correctly. 
And so we've purposely established the schedule in the manner that we have so that we can ensure that we're uh, learning from what we've already done. And by the time we get to VHA, we'll we'll leverage all of those uh, improvement activities when we implement. But VA's congressional overseers are concerned that VA has spent a significant amount of money already to serve a relatively small population of users. The department has put about a billion dollars into IFAM so far. Meanwhile, its total life cycle cost estimate has grown to about $7.5 billion. Congressman Matt Rosendale is chairman of the House VA Technology Modernization Subcommittee. From the information we have, the system seems to be relatively successful in those offices, but there's still reason to be concerned. These organizations only add up to a few thousand users and a small fraction of the VA's budget. Implementing the IFAMs in the major organizations like the Veterans Health Administration and the big spenders within the Veterans Benefits Administration keeps getting pushed out and now it's not scheduled for a rollout until 2024 and beyond. And Riffle says there's no way to guarantee the program won't undergo more cost growth between now and the late 2040s, when IFAMS is expected to reach its end of useful life. Um, what we will tell you is that based on the methodology that we're using to deploy, uh, there will be instances from time to time where we find for example, a new interface that wasn't originally identified. As you can imagine, in VA, we're doing constant modernization across the enterprise. So we are going to have discovery from time to time. What I would tell you is that the way that we're structured in an agile fashion, it's allowed us to continue to proceed, to actually move other waves forward or begin activity on another wave while we're pending getting more intel on a modernization interface or something like that. So although you are seeing some increases, what you're also seeing is our ability to flex with that and to ebb and flow as those modernization efforts continue. One major complication VA will face as it starts to deploy IFAMs into the Veterans Health Administration, the system will need to interface with other huge IT systems that haven't been built or finished yet. Perhaps the biggest examples are VA's future system to manage its medical supply chain and its new electronic health record. We're proceeding with integrating with legacy supply chain. And so as we move into VHA, which obviously we've been working with VHA for the past two years, but we're at the point now where we we need to start really in earnest working on the implementation. We'll implement with legacy. With EHRM, uh, we have been coordinating with that office since inception Uh, They have all of our requirements, detailed requirements. We'll continue to do that collaboration across the board. And then, you know, as they continue to move out, when they do, uh, we'll be prepared for that integration. It allows me to integrate with what's available right now as I'm going to implement at a site. And also understanding that when the enterprise supply chain solution becomes available, we'll pivot and we'll actually integrate with that future solution. We know we need to do it. But in the interim, we're going to integrate with what's available right now so we can proceed. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. 
Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about 
positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for 
young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling. It, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.